0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, and I'm hosting our data-driven CMO series, during which I will interview CMOs who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their business forward. In these interviews, we're going to reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, but also a ton of fun personal stories and great career advice from these incredible leaders. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Data-Driven CMO Podcast. Today, I have a really awesome guest with me, Amy, who's become a friend over the last few months, maybe even years, actually. We first met a few years ago. I just remember that at a Fortune Conference. And I think it's really been over the last few months that we've talked a bunch and I've learned so much about you and I've come to respect you even more than before when I just knew you as an amazing marketer. So thank you for joining us, Amy. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So we're going to get started with a really fun question, which is how did you begin your journey as a marketer? Did you fall into it or did you choose this career on purpose?
1: I've said before that I kind of have always liked watching ads and watching commercials. And even when I was a little kid, it must have been like seven or something on the old TV where you had to switch it yourself. Where my grandma would be like, you used to just watch the commercials and not the TV shows. So way back when I was little, I loved it. And then I liked statistics versus calculus or geometry or so the skills that are the building blocks for what would become marketing in my life. I enjoyed anthropological studies. I loved that. I loved just like figuring out what's the problem that needs to be solved and how do you solve that? And literally even public speaking or improv stuff, I liked that. Like all these pieces came together. And then I got an undergraduate degree with a specialty in marketing when I went to my undergrad. And so I kind of always liked it, just liked the building blocks of what would be known
0: as marketing, maybe when I was coming up in marketing. I find it really interesting that you think stats is a building block. I'm sure you know that there's a lot of CMOs out there who probably never done stats or never thought stats was a building block. So why do you have that belief? Well, because everything's
1: hypothesis based and you really have to understand, like, is it a coincidence? Is it probable? You have to really frame up what it is you're searching to do. Like it is just all... You know, it's like in science, you have to have your hypothesis written down so you understand what you're testing. I think that the statistics will tell you how accurate or not you are with your hypothesis. So you just have to have both of them. I just like being creative. What's the thing you're trying to do? And you can be super creative with how you problem solve, but you still have to always know what it is you're solving for, how likely it is something would actually occur. So if you want one person to buy something or solve a problem for one person, that's awesome. If you're like a mom and you're trying to solve something for your kid one person. But if you're trying to get thousands of people to do something, how do you understand the likelihood of you being successful there?
0: Yeah, I think the other part that did it for me, because that was one of my favorite topics as well in college and econometrics as well. It was also structured thinking because this whole idea of a hypothesis and how you create a proof and how you think about creating that proof and what proof is good enough to actually validate or invalidate a hypothesis. I found that fascinating. And what I think I've seen is that it's rare that you'll find a human who can really enjoy that and have a really structured approach to problem solving, but then also really enjoy the creative process, which is the opposite of being structured, essentially, at least in my experience. So how have you married that for yourself in your own brain? And then how have you thought about doing that within your teams as you've built them over the course of your career? Think back, like my mom, she was an admin at a school, a middle school, and she was
1: super creative. Like when I went to college, she sent me like diorama and the theme would be dinosaurs. And she'd have these little eraser dinosaurs that had little name tags on them and they were so sweet she was always like the kind of creative one thinking about, and she'd somehow tie the dinosaur diorama into something going on in the world. Like she just did this stuff, right? And my dad, he has a couple degrees, meteorology, engineering, computer science. And so he's like the logical one. And so I grew up with both of those in the household. So first, I think that just helps because I could debate depending on with whom I was, which side I wanted to be at that moment in time. I had that. I also like, I'm trying to think of the book. I think it was called Enumeracy. It's like the fun side of math. It's like why it could be right or wrong, but making it fun. The application of the statistics around like, what is it? If you have 34 people in a room, the likelihood of you having the same birthday becomes Mm -hmm. statistically significant because of the number of people. Like, It's just interesting facts that come out of the math itself. And then there's no way you could tell if you're doing something in the direction you need to go unless you have goalposts. And usually goalposts are driven by some hypotheses you have. So I always felt you could never move forward unless you had some bearing. And bearing can't be your own brain. Bearing can't just be creativity. Bearings have to be, again, if you're going to sell something or convince somebody or what have you, you have to have some data points outside yourself that are built in some type of reality. So with my teams, I think, first of all, just making sure I'm always bringing up questions about both creativity and data. So it's never just like, why is the number two? And how come it's two? And why did you get there? But it's also like, what are the three other ways you thought about solving the problem? So it's, what is the problem you're actually solving for? It's going back to the words. I think way, way early on when I was in CPG, they had something called an OGSM before all these goal things were like cool, you know, smart goals. OKRs. I mean. <laughs> OKRs, okay, okay, yeah. Objective goals, strategies, and metrics. And we used to think of them as words, numbers, words, numbers. And you have to have both in order to be successful. And when I hire people, though, I don't have the best attention to detail. So I also, when I hire folks in, I make sure I do have people on my staff that have that attention to detail or eat numbers for lunch or what have you, but the people have to eat numbers for lunch, have to also understand and give space for the creativity that might call into question why the number two is the number two.
0: And I think continuing to have that balance and goal people on that mix is super important. I love the way you're reflecting on all the different lessons you've learned, and in particular, how it's coming up around, I think you called it, was it OGSM? Objectives, goals,
1: strategies, and metrics. And I put a T in between the S and the M a lot because you can do strategies to metrics, but so many junior people, you need the tactics in order to get stuff done. Think about stuff all the time.
0: So I was going to say, what are maybe the tenets or the principles or some of these core lessons that you've learned throughout your career that you kind of keep coming back to and you're still using today as you think about what's next? Like you have
1: to be excited about what you're doing because I think... Some of the difference between like an individual contributor that's intellectually curious and a leader of people is you don't like do the work really anymore, right? Like, and there's a point in your career where you have to decide if both are perfectly sound choices. I want to be an individual contributor and I want to just sit here and geek out on what I'm interested in to help the greater good, or I want to be a leader in a way that is leading others and knowing I'm not going to be able to do all that anymore. So both are awesome. And just knowing yourself is helpful to know which path you want to take. Either path, you have to be super interested about what you're doing. Because in many instances, you end up being the cheering squad, as well as the cleanup crew, as well as the deflector as well. Like You put on all these hats, of the thing you're so passionate about, it makes every day more meaningful and more successful. If you can always go back to, am I passionate about what I'm doing? Am I clear about what the strategies are? Is everybody aligned with what those strategies are? If they're not and they're important, how do I help understand where the barriers are? Is my team set up for success? All that just sounds like a lot of corralling in order to get to the thing you're passionate about. So I think for me, it just over time, and after working 30 years, you kind of have the luxury of like, I'm passionate about this thing. But I think what made me successful, even when I was younger in my career, was I would always find the thing I was passionate about. So even like I was relaunching Prego way back in the day, right? Like I had to do everything from how thick was a glass bottle? Is it embossed? What's the picture? Do we do a picture? Do we do graphic? What do I call it? What are the sub-brands? What's the pricing? Like all that stuff that you sit in and do, it's all like the target was, wow. And at the time, it was like that mom that's serving her kid an Italian meal how do I make her successful because the family loved the food, right? Like, so it's the thing, it's the person, it's the target, it's the problem I'm trying to solve for. And if I'm arguing with the purchaser that they couldn't get the bottle as thin as we thought because it was breaking, so now I have to find another couple million dollars in my P&L and it's all worth it because this is the thing I'm solving for and this is the job I have and I get excited about that.
0: I like the idea of really humanizing the work. Because that's essentially what it sounds like gave you purpose and made you excited. And I think in general, a lot of marketing gets lost in the numbers and sometimes gets lost in the creative process and forgets about the human and ultimately whether it's B2B or B2C, it's always towards human. So it's a good reminder.
1: I know the funnel. I keep hearing like the funnel. I got to work on the funnel. I'm like, you got to work on getting a person. And so, where's the person getting stuck? And are enough people getting stuck in that same spot? And if they are getting stuck, then what do we do about it? Sometimes you can think of the funnel is just like a big game. Like, if I worked at Microsoft and I was doing ABC Game and you're looking and track where all the people are getting stuck, it's kind of like the same, I just thought of differently.
0: You know, what you just said is actually, I would say, like the kind of magic bullet of product market fit for startups. Like, I think if startups just, Someone gave us like a poster and we put it on the wall and it's not about the funnel. It's not about product market fit and the 10 rules. It's about like the human on the other end. What is the pain and do enough people have that pain? And how do you humanize the process of figuring out how do you solve that pain? So I like it. It's a good reminder for me too. I think all of us get lost in the tactics and the metrics too much. What's been the hardest thing in your career to explain to non-marketers? You've obviously been and are in positions of great power. You've been surrounded by people who don't understand marketing. What's been the hardest thing and how have you overcome it? If you have, maybe you haven't, that's fine too.
1: <laughs> I guess there's two things. One is, and it almost depends on what industry you're in, right? If you're in consumer packaged goods, it's different than retail, is different than tech because the frame of reference of the marketer is different depending on the industry you're sitting in. So with tech a marketer is considered a particular way that the tech industry has seen marketing. In many instances, the product team has many of the skills, if you will, that the market have. So for example, we had this big debate over pricing. And I was sitting across from a product person and they're like, well, we're doing the pricing. It's not marketing function to pricing. I'm like, well, it can also be in finance. It just depends on the company where it's sitting. He's like, well, what do you mean by pricing? And they're like, well, we're doing A-B testing on should it be 549 versus whatever, right? I'm like, hmm, but what's the strategy of the price? Like, Is the brand a value brand? Is it a smart brand? Is it a thrifty brand? Does it not care about that? And then this one piece of then a puzzle of what the strategy is. And then you say within, what should your pricing be? Like, does a nine designate cheap and everything should end in a five? So who owns that? What does it look like? And I think some of the debates I was having in tech, it was like, well, you don't know that we're just doing the A-B testing on the price. That's not a marketing function. But when you're in CPG, you kind of like own the whole thing. So your brain has to kind of manage what that is. So my roommate in college was an engineer. He's like, really marketing? Like, don't you go to school for a craft? Then you market. I'm like, huh, that's fascinating. So I said to him, I said, okay, here's what a marketer does, at least in my head, what possibility of marketing is. There's two other one. One, you walk into a grocery store and imagine everything is either in a box and a can, and there's only a white label, and there's only black lettering on the box or can, and the only thing they could describe to you on the box or can are the ingredients and the cooking directions. Now there's 30,000 items. I'm going to give you five minutes and 10 products to find in the grocery store. Go. And he's like, well, that's not marketing. I said, the branding's marketing. The packaging is marketing, the naming's marketing, the location in the store is communication. They're marketing it from the grocery store's perspective. You mm-hmm. understand what it is and how it fits in your life because of the communications you've gotten. There's signals outside the store, coupons and other things that are driving you into the store. So, so for me, it's like, that's marketing. When I describe like how hard it would be to find something, why would you buy a Rolex watch? You buy a Rolex watch because there's some value in Rolex. Why do you buy a Timex? because of what it stands for, what it is. Some people like my engineer friend would be like, but it's about the best product. Like Rolex is a great product. My Timex is a great product. They're used for different things. They both can have the same exact things inside, but the way they're branded, the way they're looked, the way this one can never have a leather strap. This one always has to have a leather strap. Like there's strategies, there's guardrails, there's things like that. So anyway, I don't know, long way to go around like... It could be all of those things. I think the biggest challenge today is defining who in your organization, going back to like OGSMs, like who's owning pricing? How do you define price? Is it a strategy function? Is it a tactic function? And then who has to agree to abide by whatever the guardrails are that are being set so that the brand shows up with the right promises for the customer at the end? Like if Timex started going outside their brand guardrails, you'd be like, that's weird. Like I'm not going to spend $10,000 on a Timex. No, but you would for a Rolex. If you saw a Rolex for $50, bucks, you would probably think it was
0: counterfeit. Yeah, definitely. I think potentially where I've seen marketers struggle the most is actually in technology. I was talking to someone, a company called Chime. I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's kind of a growth company in the financial tech space. And she was a growth leader there. And she was saying that there's a growth marketing function that she runs It's under marketing. And then there's a growth marketing function that sits under product. And that deals with product hacks. So there's constantly this really interesting conversation, let's call it diplomatically, between the two and who does what and who's responsible for what. And it feels really crippling that there's no clear ownership. Do you think that tech, because it sounds like CPG has it right, where you kind of give marketing everything, at least from this perspective, do you think tech is behind in understanding the importance of marketing and will they come around to it? Yeah, I don't know so much as marketing having... Everything.
1: Like when I was in retail, operations had to sit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Operations are like the tech component of building a product sits in a different space and they all kind of work more together because it's all in service of opening the doors every day. So there's a clear what's it in service to. Going back to maybe the question you said before to move us into this question is, I had to show my resume to a tech leader because they had no idea. I'm not curious to understand, but we had had an impasse. What my background was or what my skills are. Hmm. I wasn't like, here's my resume. It was more like, do you want to know what I know? Because I'd be glad to share that because you're talking to me in a way that I have never done this. So why don't I give you the benefit of the doubt and I'll share with you what I've done? And after that conversation, they were like, oh, I had no idea. So I think some of it is, I don't think the two groups ever sit down to share what each other do. You can go online and you can put in product managing versus product marketing and the same skills show up on both sides. Quite often, it's just which side you choose. The issue I find with having growth in two different groups, several issues. One is for whatever reason, and it's probably because I want to own this. They don't talk to each other. The second is I think they both think what they're doing is so special and different when really if they just took a hot second. It's trying to achieve the same goals through different channels. And if you thought about it holistically, the data signals that you would send between the different areas would be running a relay, not running a bunch of sprints. I think the person, and I don't know what it's going to be in the future, but people that come up through marketing, like they know some of that stuff, but they're not being tapped into at all for it. So you could sit on one side going like, I feel not respected at all. No one's listening to me here. I feel like a second class citizen. Whereas on the other side, you could be all like, I know this particular thing. I'm going to go deep on this particular thing. And I don't need to hear what everybody else is saying, because this is my craft, right? So you can see how there's a lot of tension. Mm I don't know how to solve for it because it does seem like the solve I had was sitting down across from somebody and having a conversation about what the skills are that teams bring and having honest ones too, because in marketing it's like, oh, they actually don't know these things. I came up through CPG, but they didn't. Or on the product team, keep going back to the debate on pricing, A B testing 495 versus 475 is not a pricing strategy. That's a tactic. So how do you have more of those conversations? I think it goes back to trust and the leaders, and are they willing to like do trust falls with each other
0: or not? Have you ever done an actual trust fall? I have. <laughs> really? I've never done it.
1: Comics is very like it used to be. I don't, I don't know anymore. More 30 years, but we stand on a plank, right, and you trust fall back. Did <laughs> it didn't work? It did. It did. We did it with a different department. That we worked very closely with. And it was at the end of all, you know, you do a ropes course, you do the balancing thing. You know, everybody has to stand on one side of the board and
0: you do a reflection walk and yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. And then at the end I love that, everybody did. It's so cheesy and so corporate. And yet we have a leadership offset next week. And I think I might do all of those things, especially the trust falls between engineering and product, between product and marketing, the functions that naturally have friction because it's kind of built. For some reason, everyone's posturing, right? And I think that's where it comes from. And so even if you build the right culture, I think you constantly have to go back and sort of temper the natural human reaction, if that makes sense, and constantly bring everyone back to a place of transparency and safety and vulnerability. It's interesting because
1: like I had, when I first joined my last company, there was a conversation I'd had with a data person and literally they were like getting so frustrated. And then finally they're like, why does marketing need this data? Like when do they need data? And I was like, huh, that's fascinating that that's what you're thinking. Because I assume walking in that of course marketers need data. Like how do you prove anything? And then starting from there, it was great. I had a really great partner on the data side and it was like, what do you think about marketers? And he would talk to them about it and we'd get like the really raw truth. And then I'd be like, what do you think of the data side? And then we'd have conversations before we go into some of these sessions, knowing how the teams felt. Because it's all just BS. They'll sit there and be like, I like you. Because no one likes conversation. But you have to kind of call people on their feelings and or set up conversations as the balanced seniority or whatever to be able to do it that could call it. Because only at that point can you go through understanding each other and then building the trust and then falling.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's really good advice. Speaking of data, creative, marketing, et cetera, I'm more familiar with your experience at Zillow and how important both content and data were, but I'll let you talk about it. I'm also curious about your previous experiences and if you can reflect a little about the intersection between content and data and how both of those things really moved your understanding of the customer journey and how you kind of mapped all your tactics and strategies to it.
1: So when I was at Starbucks, I think like ten years ago, it was a while it was like the phone was just out, and social media was just new, mm-hmm. and a lot of that was we thought about Starbucks is the fourth place. It's a way you interact with customers. It's the way the barista says good morning and says thank you for coming in. So content at that point was, how do you meet the customer where they are? And in many instances, it was on social media, where it was like a bride going, I'm sitting here with my bridesmaids. And, I guess I'm and then, you know, somebody on the social team would contact a district manager who would get coffee to the bridesmaids. So it's like, how do you use content in order to extend the experience that a customer is having with your brand? Or like we put the cups on the top of the taxis and they would stick and people would run after the taxis like you forgot your starbucks cups on the top you know and then you capture it and then you put it on for us a lot of that was that the whole extension of the brand and then when it became like when i was running the loyalty program and we were doing mobile order and pay and we were doing personalization engine and that kind of stuff it was like what was going to then show up in a similar fun way in an app in the stream and the way that you intersect and how far up or not do you put an offer versus a brand idea? How many times does it take? Like, are they scrolling? How much should they scroll? Like, we started from the standpoint of always wanting to interact with humans in a certain way and just thought of all of the channels as assets to continue to drive it, right? Our app was never the app, the standalone app. It was a way to amplify the Starbucks experience. And that's how I would sell in the digital experiences of Starbucks, because it's a way you extend the experience. It is not a standalone thing that's so awesome that everybody talks about that is a tech feature, right? Like it's not because the app could go away and the storage is still there. So everybody understanding, again, what it's in service to is super important in regards to that and all the content played for that. Now for a tech product, its product is the actual screen itself. What I came in to do is help Zillow understand how to drive end-to-end customer interactions. So not just on the app, but then once I find an agent, what does that look like? And what does it lead up to? And what we found out really quickly is if you have 20 different data sources and you have a bunch of different interactions, you have 100 million unique users coming onto your app that also may be looking at a mortgage, how do you know what is effective? how do you know how to find which 5 million of the 100 million are actually going to buy a home this year? You're not the only app. How do you know how they're going to trip on information they need that leads them back to you? So what we spent a lot of time on was trying to figure out what that looked like. So different than like amplifying a customer experience, this was more like, how do I help you find something? But it's still all kind of has to be connected. Like otherwise, it's just spitting out the wind and wasting money because everything should add to something else. But what's interesting, like diamonds and cars and houses and some of this stuff, the chips aren't in people's brains, thank goodness. So you're never going to know what's the last thing they did that put them over the edge. But going back to statistics, you can know there's a higher likelihood if they see these things in their path. And then you have to have the conversation of what channel should it be in? Are they really seeing it? Is it a channel that gives it credibility or takes credibility away? Those kind of things.
0: I think what's interesting is you've essentially described the difference in marketing for a low-consideration product versus a high-consideration product. In the low-consideration product category, it's more about inserting yourself into people's lives in moments where you can get them to make a decision to go get something. And the decision happens in moment. Whereas in the case of Zillow, there's so many incremental decision-making points that lead someone down the path of eventually making the big decision. Must have been an interesting transition for you to go through coming from Starbucks into Zillow. Was that hard? I mean, how long did it take for you to like rewire your brain to that? Customers both found each brand strong in its own way.
1: Like a brand leader, it was cool because that was like a cool brand, right? Like you could go on and you could dream. So in a way, they're both like fun brands to work on. That part was fine and fun. I think some of the hard things for me were like, how do you get where the customer's mindset is. So at Starbucks, you can go sit in a store and you can sit close up the register to hear what the interactions are. You can talk to the baristas about stuff. You can go to seven different cities and see, like you can go to Gallaudet, you can go to Maryland. You can see how a store that caters to deaf customers is different than a store interaction might be in an inner city is different than a store out here in Seattle, what have you, right? That was a lot harder to do at Zillow. They didn't set up for that type of interaction because mostly it was an ad services model with a really fun skin on top, which was awesome. And that's worked. So that part was hard for me because I really like to see tangibly who I'm servicing and why. So we set up some of that, you know, where we could do some of the ethnographic work. We could really look closely at the user journeys from an emotional standpoint, not from a task to
0: do standpoint. That's awesome. That makes sense. I think it's really incredible that you managed to make that transition and be successful in so many different industries. My final row of questions is really about the future. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the past two and a half years. I'm sure they're probably similar to a lot of our collective thoughts around the change we've experienced, but even more curious as to what you think marketing is going to look like over the next 12 months and the sort of industries and types of marketers and brands that will go on the offense versus defense. Yeah, so oh, so many questions in that question.
1: So marketing, I think marketing has to decide what marketing wants to be. I was on an MMA call, and we're like, do marketers know what marketing is? And you know, that kind. So I again, it depends on your industry. If you're in certain industries, it means this. If you're in other industries, it means that. CMO still has the lowest tenured. Is it down to... Is it less than two years yet already? I don't know. I did three and a half, so yay. But I don't know if some of that is because people just don't know what marketing is, what it can contribute, what it looks like, and feel valued in that role. So I think it's a very interesting spot we're in right now. Mm -hmm. I guess I find as long as you're intellectually curious leader who can rally enough people around the problem to solve for the customer, and I mean B2B customer or B2C customer, it doesn't matter to your point all humans. And then really look at the strategies in place to achieve those goals. And if everybody in the organization is set up to do that, then how do you fit yourself in that space? And that's what I think deciding the industry you want to be in. How do they see marketing really clear on? A single source of identity doesn't mean for each business line. It means for the company. Like, how do you define what that is when you go in and have conversations? Where do I think everything's going? I don't know. I've really been advising kind of different groups on stuff because I've had this unique space. And I've seen quite a bit of companies now starting up trying to get humans and tech and consumables together in a way that I've really not seen this type of momentum before. And I think because the data expense, you can see content stuff now, you can do interconnectedness of things. Mm-hmm. It's less expensive. It's more easy to do. To do this. So for example, like there's a great company called Quip and they're doing the dentistry. And they're looking, how do you get the dentists on? How do you get the insurers in? How do you look at the people themselves? And when I'm brushing my teeth, do I want to see me? Or do I want to see an avatar? Like all this great stuff. It's a lot like what I think Warby Parker maybe was doing a while ago, which is like, come to the store and the glasses, return the glasses. Here's what you look like with the glasses. But it would be like, you're trying now to get your eye appointment as well as therapy for your eyes if they don't work as well as whatever. So I'm wondering if the future just, we've talked so much about the interconnectedness of things. Mm-hmm. The things don't matter. It's the interconnectedness of the people and getting people connected in a way that they could solve their problems. And it feels like we're moving from the interconnectedness of things, because who cares? To like, I don't care if my things are connected in the house. I just want to make sure the shades are down when I go to bed because it's light here till 10 o'clock at night still, right? So, like, that's what it feels like to me. And the question
0: I have is then is how does marketing want to be part of that? Well, it sounds like you would have a massive role in that because if the momentum you're seeing is really in this area of consumer products connected to humans, connected to data, then marketing is really the function that is best suited to connect all of those things, right? Now, the asterisk
1: on it is this could be the way I see the world because this is what I like the world to be. Yeah, of course. A friend of mine had said there's a proverb where she comes from if the cat meows and it rains, then the cat caused the rain. (laughs) 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 But yeah, it does seem whether it's mental health care for older folks or an interconnected house, or unless it's easy to do, unless somebody wants it, it's not going to work. And if it only works 80% of the time, it's going to fail. So again, like if I want my, blinds to go up and down, but 80% of the time my device is offline because of a hardware issue, I'm not going to use them. I'm going to move to the next device. Like Some of it is understanding what's the barrier to entry for the customer, the cost. And as I said, some of these costs now are coming down and the perforation of stuff is happening at such rate that just keeping an
0: eye on what was there before may not be what's there in the future. It's fun times. I think it's super exciting. I love that. I love the fact that you're coming at it with so much energy. I feel like we're surrounded by all sorts of news. I think news outlets are trying to drive readership anyway, but there's just a lot of big titles out there around what's going to happen. So it's great to hear that you're seeing this moment. Yeah, flood
1: sales. Fear uncertainty, and
0: Doubt sells newspapers and sells headlines.
1: Sometimes, I guess, marketing, you get a thick skin. I remember when I launched VIA, there was headlines like, instant coffee drives lower sales and re Starbucks stores. The headline was atrocious. And the whole article was like, oh my God, I can't believe we launched it in the middle of sales declining. There's a bright spotlight. But the title was like crap, right? It's not something you want to do as a marketer. Because that's a click on. A click. Friend of mine, he's a CEO at a company and he's trying to figure out how does he get people to, for example, if you're a diabetic and you just figured out you're a diabetic, you may not want to do the test for the blood and he has thing that he sends to the house, blah, blah, blah. And they were going at it by like, but you can get sicker. And they said, well, what else can you find out about yourself if you looked at your blood? What else? What's the positive? What's the guy's name from the office? John, I mispronounced his last name all the time. John K. He was the funny guy in the office, married to Jenna or somebody. You anyway, he has the good news channel. And I was saying to him, what if everybody just kind of looked at how you would need to get somebody to do something by showing them the positive side yeah, versus the negative? And you have to have both because it depends on the person and what. But to your point, it's just everything's kind of crap right now. I don't want to put blinders on. It's crap, but we don't have to get out and like make sure we're voting and doing our part to do all that 100%. And how do you continue to look towards how do you make things better? Because you can't just be the defense for everything that's going on. You also have to be offense for it, too.
0: That's such a powerful message for us to end on. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate that. And in particular, the lightness that you brought to the end. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank
1: you for having me. Always awesome to chat with you.
0: Thanks for listening to Data Driven
1: CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot
0: And thanks for listening.